Wow, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend. You're all the people who stayed here, right? So that is awesome because I hate teaching myself, and uh, it's great to see you. Uh, we're supposed to have like a motorcycle club with us today, like, like black sheep or something. We got a black sheep here? Where they're like, right here, we got one. Okay, all right. We got a few of you. Welcome. Yeah, that's great. Great to have, good to have you guys here. Uh, that's, that's great. Uh, all right, we're going to go into our time of teaching. Um, so my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, if you're here for the very first time, special welcome. But uh, we're going to go into time of teaching. Usually lasts two or three hours. So um, you're going to need, so you're gonna need a, an insert like to help you follow along. So inside your, um, your program is green and white uh, insert. And we're going to jump in and continue our series. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here. We're excited about your calling on our lives, what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what happens to us when we come to Jesus, the transformation we go through, the transfer we, we move from one kingdom to another kingdom, and all the different dynamics that release us. And so we, we pray today, as we come, we talk about spiritual warfare, that you would be uh, meeting us in powerful ways and opening our eyes to perhaps realities that we've either uh, never seen or seen but forgotten that help us know what the next step is in our walk with you. And so we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last couple of months called Sent, Piercing the Darkness. And for those of you who are new, this is actually uh, the fourth uh, mini-series in a longer-running series. Think of it like the fourth season of a longer-running TV drama uh, that's called Sent. And Sent is a study of one of the most important books in the Bible. Uh, it's in the New Testament. It's called the book of Acts. And it, what Acts does is it documents, kind of describes the rise and the rapid growth of the early movement of Jesus from his resurrection uh, over the next 30 years as the message of Jesus spreads across the Roman Empire. And uh, in this current uh, series, we're watching as one of the key leaders of the early movement, a man named uh, Paul, has recruited a small team and they have been going into the area around the Aegean Sea, so like modern-day Turkey, Greece, sharing the message of Jesus where it's never gone before. So last week, we watched as he finished what we call his second missionary tour, second Jesus-sharing tour. They returned home to Antioch, which was his home, home city um, in Syria, and then he launched off with his third Jesus-sharing expedition. And so just to get oriented, let's take a look at the map you have there uh, on your note sheet on the inside. Uh, if you look on the right side of your map, you see the city of Antioch on the right side and about halfway up. And then so he, last week, they, there was their home church. They launched from there. They're going to go north and then west. Uh, he'll go through his, his home where he was born in Tarsus. But then he'll stop at the churches he started on his first missionary journey, uh, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Anak, and he lands at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a big deal. Ephesus would be like the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was famous for lots of reasons. It was the capital of this much larger Roman province called Asia. So like LA uh, would be a big city, but California would be like the province, right? So it was the capital. It was famous for many reasons. Uh, it was one of the locations of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll talk about that uh, later on in this series. Um, but it was also very famous for its occult activity. And so that all plays into the account today. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's open up to Acts chapter 19 and verse 8, and we're going to jump right on in. So in uh, verse 8, 19, 8, uh, Paul 
enters the synagogue. This is what he does in every city we've seen. He starts his ministry if there's a synagogue there with Jewish people and, and Gentile God-fearers. And he speaks boldly for three months. Now, this is a pretty big deal because Paul usually gets kicked out long before three months. And so actually things are going really well. And he's, um, he's arguing persuasively about the what? Okay, stay it together. About the what? Yeah, then this is important because uh, the prophets of Israel, as you know, had predicted that one day uh, that, that God would return to his people, kind of forgive their sins, pour out his spirit. Uh, a great king would arise, messianic king, uh, that would kind of turn all wrongs to right, bring all of uh, the kind of new heavens, new earth in. We call it the kingdom of God. And what the early church believed is that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the launching of that kingdom had started. And so this was Paul's argument. He's sharing it with them there for three months. But after uh, three months, it says some of them became obstinate and they refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. Now I want to highlight two things. Number one, remember the early movement of Jesus in Acts is called the way. Okay, so uh, that's that. But uh, I want to call your attention. If you write in your Bibles or you make notes in your, your app or whatever, I would highlight or, or circle that where they refuse to believe. And I want to talk about that just for a minute because um, it's very important. In the Greek, it actually doesn't say they refuse to believe. What it actually says is they hardened themselves. Now, if you're a longtime Christ follower, you may be familiar with this that many times, especially in the Old Testament, this, uh, this phrase of people hardening their hearts happens, right? And so uh, this is a very important spiritual concept. Um, I call it the dimmer switch principle. Those of you who've been here at Rocky Peak for a long time, about every three or four months, I pull this out. It's so important. I think if I only had one spiritual principle of life, this might be it. Um, and so I just want to highlight it real quickly. And basically how this, work, how this works is that what the Bible says is that when God reveals spiritual truth to us, it's like he's turning on a light. And when he opens our eyes to, to, to new truth, we have either one of two reactions. We move towards the light and embrace the light. And if so, the closer we get to the light, the more light we have. Uh, or we can reject the light because it's revealing our darkness and we don't want the, can't, we don't like the implications. And so we're going to change and move away. And if so, we, our lives become more dark. So it's like a dimmer switch. You move towards the truth, embrace the truth, you get more truth. You ignore the truth, move away, you lose even the truth you have. The Bible describes that often in terms of a hardening of heart. In other words, instead of having a soft heart towards God, if you resist the truth long enough, your heart hardens till you lose the capacity, the sensitivity to respond. And so that's what's going on here, is that Paul has been sharing for three months the message of Jesus and making his case, but they're becoming more and more resistant. They're hardening their hearts. And here's what happens. When we harden our heart long enough, we lose our capacity to see or respond to the truth. So it's a very dangerous thing that happens. We lose our ability to repent. We lose our ability to respond to things that used to, to, uh, to bother us. Don't even. So for example, just real practically here, let's say that you're married, you're a Christian husband, and you are harsh. You're harsh with your wife, and the Holy Spirit is enlightening you to that. You have a choice either to move towards it, embrace that truth, and change, or to put up your defenses and say, I don't want to hear that truth, and move away. If you ignore the truth, you will become more harsh, and your harshness will bother you less. See how that works? So, so this is, and it doesn't matter what the issue is. Now, the reason I bring it up is it's going to become very important on later on today, all right? So anyway, that's what's going on. And so um, anyway, so 
I'm in chapter 17. That's not going to work. Okay, <laughs> back in chapter 19. So they, they're publicly maligning the way. So Paul leaves them, and he's going to do something very creative. He's never, we've never seen him do this. He's going to rent out some public space. Now, often today, when a new church starts, you can't afford your own building, you rent out public space. That's what he does. He rents out a hall, a lecture hall, of a man named Tyrannus. Now, you've heard of the dinosaur. No, it's not. No. Um, yeah, Tyrannus. So, uh, this is in the ancient world, uh, the work day would start early, you know, with the dawn or whatever, so maybe start at six. You work till about 11 in the morning, take a long lunch break, and an early afternoon, like, siesta break. And so what we believe happened is very likely he rented out this hall in the middle of the day, maybe evenings, and he could teach there. And so uh, it says that uh, he took the disciples, the Jesus followers, the new ones, uh, and they had discussions daily in this lecture hall of Tyrannus. And so this went on for two years. So he's been there for two years and three months. We know that eventually he's going to be there almost three years. And so I catch this, all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So this is really sort of the high watermark for the ministry of Paul in the book of Acts. He spends longer than any other time, almost three years, in Ephesus, much longer than any other place, closest would be Corinth, two years. Um, and uh, Ephesus becomes like a spiritual airline hub. You know how a hub works? Like if you fly Delta, you fly through? Yeah, Atlanta, right. And uh, so everything, you go into Atlanta, and then you, you hub out from there, in the same way that here, like Ephesus became this spiritual hub. And from there, the message of Jesus not only spread through Ephesus, fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, but it spread out to the surrounding uh, area, the California, if you will, the province of Asia. And that would very likely, we don't know for sure, but very likely would take in churches like Colossae, like the church of Colossians, we'll talk about that later. Uh, it would take in maybe the churches of Revelation 2 and 3, you know, where Jesus sends the letters to the seven churches, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Very likely they started during this time. So very effective ministry. Now, one of the reasons it was so effective is God was pouring out his spirit in very supernatural ways and doing a ton of amazing miracles through Paul. Not just your normal, typical miracle, but uh, in the Greek it says the more than normal miracles. Uh, and so you say, well, what's like more than normal? Well, uh, Luke gives us an example that uh, Paul was working as a tent maker, right? So he would have his sweat cloths. There's actually terms for this in the Greek. His sweat cloths, his headbands, apron, you know, when he's working on these huge tents. Remember, not Coleman, but like Bedouin. So leather tents. And so some people, like the miracles Paul was doing were so amazing. They were just trying to get a piece of his clothes or his apron or his handkerchiefs and take them to sick people and they're actually getting healed. And even demon-possessed people are getting freed up. And so uh, there's some exorcists in town who, this is big business, right? They're thinking like, hey, maybe we can get in on this. So in the ancient world, uh, demonic activity was very obvious and, uh, and, and common. Um, you see this much in the third world today. If you do like global ministries or something like that. Uh, here in the Western society, Satan has taken, uh, for the most part, a different strategy, though you see this from time to time. But in Western, I mean, in uh, like the third world, so you see you know, a lot of very obviously demonic things. And first century was like that. And so in the first century world, people were very afraid of spirits. And uh, as a result of this, was a huge cottage industry for exorcists. Some of these guys were, um, were, uh, were actually Jews. 
um, the, the Jewish exorcists as well, as well. Now, one of the things we know from history is that Ephesus was famous for its occult work and famous for its exorcism. In fact, we have actually discovered archaeological scrolls that we still have today that, uh, that from the ancient world that have magic incantations and spells and so on that you would use to try to exorcise people from demonic activity. Uh, we call these the Ephesian letters because Ephesus was so famous for this. In fact, there in your note sheet, I put a quote from uh, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, a man named F.F. F. Bruce, who's now with the Lord, but uh, he was a major scholar in the 20th century. But in his commentary on Acts, he says, a number of such magical scrolls um, have survived to our day. There are especially famous examples in the London, Paris, and Leiden collections. The special connection of Ephesus with magic is reflected in the term Ephesian letters for magical scrolls. That's what they called the ancient world. And he said, the, uh, the spells with which they abound are for the most part the merest gibberish. They're a rigmarole. And I just love that, that that's a real word. I didn't even know that. <laughs> and it just cracks me up that like this brilliant New Testament scholar uses that word. But it's a rigmarole of words and names considered to be unusually potent, arranged sometimes in patterns which were essential to the efficacy of the spell. And they fetched high prices. So scrolls in the ancient world were very expensive, like a, say a, a letter of Paul might cost just $2,000 in materials. Very expensive. And so these scrolls uh, fetched a high price. And notice that they had key names, uh, key sayings, a lot of gibberish, but they were believed to be, have magical power if they're said the right way. So what's going to happen as this name of Jesus gets well known for all these miracles, there's these uh, Jewish exorcists. They're all seven brothers. They have a, a father who's a priest, a chief priest. And uh, as, as in our modern world, you know, it's our current world, often it's believed that, you know, like, well, you know, priests or pastors, they must have more spiritual authority. So these guys are all seven sons of this Jewish priest named Sceva. And uh, they decide they're going to try out using this name of Jesus, much like you'd use a name or you know, a, a chant or whatever. Um, but they want to make sure they get the right Jesus. Because uh, in the ancient world, in Israel, Jesus was a very common name. Like often here, I'll talk about the writings of Flavius Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, Roman historian. In his writings alone, he mentions 26 different Jesuses. Right? So it's very common. So these exorcists want to make sure they get this right. So they're going to take a, tackle a particularly difficult case of demonization, and they're going to command this spirit in the name of Jesus. Uh, by the way, the Jesus that Paul preaches. <laughs> they want the spirit to make sure they're getting the name right. They don't know his last name. Um, and, uh, and so they're in for a, a rude awakening. Um, this is going to really backfire on them. And so let's see what happens. Now I'm in Acts 16. All right, so, uh, so verse 11. So God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taking the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. And so some Jews who went around driving out evil, evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, I command you, come out. And so seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And one day, the evil spirit answered them. I love this really particular tough case. The spirit answers back, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? 
Now, I love this because we're going to come back to this later. I want you to remember this. When it comes to spiritual authority, everything depends on relationship. It's not what you know or how you say it. It's who you know. Huh? <laughs> All right. We'll come back. Verse 16. So, but I love this. This man, I, I just wish they'd make a movie out of this. This would be awesome. I'd like to see what this looks like on the big screen. The man who has the evil spirit, he jumps on them. Remember, there's seven of them. And he overpowers them. He gives them such a beating, they run out of the house naked and bleeding. Now, I want you to take your imagination, and I want you to picture this. It takes a little while to rip the clothes off of seven guys, <laughs> let alone beat them to where they're bleeding. I mean, this guy is giving them a whooping. And uh, it reminds me of an account, we'll talk about this later, in Luke chapter 8. Remember, remember, Luke is the author. Luke writes two volumes to describe the movement of Jesus and his life, death, resurrection, and his movement. Volume 1 is Luke. Volume 2 is Acts. He assumes he read Luke. Well, in Luke, exorcisms are a big deal. We'll come back to that. But in Luke chapter 8, there's a similar scene where Jesus goes to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. It's a Gentile company, country, and there's a, a man who, it's the worst case of demonization we see in the New Testament. This man, when Jesus confronts him and asks him, what are the name of the demons? The demon says, my name is Legion, for there are many of us. And uh, this man is described as running through the graveyards at night, cutting himself, running naked, but he's also described as having superhuman strength, so much so that when he would be chained up by the, uh, the townspeople, he would break the chains. And what's interesting is that in that man's picture, you kind of have a picture of what Satan would love to do with each of us if he had his will. Complete destruction. And so you're, if you remember that account, after Jesus frees him, then Luke describes him as when, by the time Jesus is done with him, he's no longer cutting himself in naked and going crazy. He is clothed and at peace and in his right mind. And it's a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And the freedom and the peace that Jesus brings when he sets someone free on a different scale, depending on the demonic activity that's been involved in their life. And so uh, remember what Jesus said, that the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy he said, I have come that you might have life. And you see it on an extreme scale in that. And so this is a very similar account where this man severely demonized, has supernatural strength, and just kind of whoops up on these seven boys. So anyway, um, when this, uh, verse 17, when this becomes known to the Jews and Greeks, that's everyone, living in Ephesus, they're all seized with fear. Uh, this is like, man, people are, like, they understand the spiritual world is real. And there has been a display of power that they don't understand, and it is scary. Uh, but the bottom line is the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Let's, like, not try that one again. Uh, and so a number, but this is really fascinating to me. Now, remember, Paul's been there a couple of years, right? People have come to Jesus. They've been baptized. They're believers. And yet, they have been holding, there's many of them, because they were in Ephesus, because a cult had been part of their lifestyle, they're still holding on to their old lifestyle, secretly. And when this event happens, they realize this spiritual war thing, it is far more dangerous than we realize. And number two, they realize that Jesus is more powerful than the, the spirits that we have served and been afraid of. And so I need to completely renounce 
this whole part of my life that I've been keeping in the closet. And I need to align myself with Jesus so I can move in the freedom that he has for me. And so this is critical because I want you to catch, these are believers, right? Believers who've come to Jesus and yet still holding on to parts of their old life until this happens. And so let's see what happens. So in verse 18, many of those who believed, so they were already believers, they now came and openly confessed what they'd done. So up to this point, they'd been hiding it. And a number who had practiced sorcery, they even brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. So I want you to catch this. This will become important later. They confess publicly, stop hiding, but then they burn their scrolls. Some of you may remember this from history. There's a famous account of when the Spanish explorer Cortez arrived in Mexico that he burned his ships. Didn't you remember that? And the reason he burned his ships, he's sending a message to his men, there is no going back. No matter what we face here, no matter how great the challenge is, I don't want any of you thinking there is a way out and we can go back. So we're going to burn our ships so the only way forward is forward. And this is what these believers are doing. They're not just confessing what they're doing, they are renouncing. And they're burning their ships. And that distinction between confessing and renouncing, we'll talk about later on today. And so a number of them who practiced sorcery, they brought their scrolls, they burned them publicly, and when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, that may not mean a lot to you, but a drachma was, uh, a, was the value of a day laborer's work. So if you think in our terms today, what would that be? Maybe a day labor, maybe a, let's say call it $100 today. So 50,000 of those is $5 million. This was a huge bonfire and a huge cost of renouncing. But in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew, with, grew in power. So next, uh, next couple of weeks, we'll come back to Ephesus in a couple of weeks. And as we come back, we're going to see kind of what happens next. A major event happens about at the end of almost three years that's going to drive Paul out. It's an incredible event. We'll come back to that. Uh, but today, I want to focus on this topic that uh, Paul is, or that Luke is raising for us here in a very intentional way and highlighting is this topic of spiritual warfare, right? So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Warfare 101, three key principles that flow out of the passage, and then we're going to come back with one really penetrating question at the end. And so here we go. Number one, the first, uh, the first principle is that spiritual warfare, this is what Luke wants to communicate. He wants us to get, as followers of Jesus, that spiritual warfare is real. Now, we live in a culture today that is highly schizophrenic when it comes to the unseen realm. On the one side, you have many in our culture who would be extremely skeptical of anything supernatural. God, spirits, demons, anything. Anything that's not scientific, can't be proved, seen under a microscope, is not real. And you see that very big in our culture. The weird thing in our culture is that there's a whole another part of our culture that we are running full speed ahead into anything supernatural. So anything supernatural, paranormal, 
uh, magic, white magic, black magic, um, uh, astral projection, uh, uh, horoscopes, Ouija boards, a seance, anything, uh, new at crystal, anything supernatural, we're all in. So we live in a culture very split on this issue, but what Luke wants us to understand is that when someone comes to Jesus, they step into a new level of spiritual warfare. And this spiritual warfare is very real. Now, this is something that Luke has been highlighting in both his volumes. Remember, he assumes, we're reading both Luke and Acts together, in volume of one, uh, this whole issue of exorcisms is huge. It's not like a sidebar, it's big. So when Jesus comes, what's his message? His message is the kingdom of God has arrived. Right? The kingdom of God is near. It's a him. And so the prophets in the Old Testament, a prophet that one day God would come to the nation, that he would bring forgiveness. He'd pour out his spirit. He'd turn all wrongs to right. He would bring in new heavens and new earth. And so Jesus comes and says, that is starting. That agenda is starting. And one of the marks of it was this uh, it's often portrayed by Jesus in, in the Gospels. It's, this, it's portrayed as the influx of a new kingdom. The kingdom of God is invading the kingdom of darkness and Satan. So, for example, in World War II, uh, most of us are familiar with D-Day in Normandy. And so on D-Day, the Allied forces land at Normandy, and from there they launch an assault on Europe controlled by Nazis. And they're taking over ground as they go. The picture the New Testament paints, it's exactly what's happening with the coming of Jesus. With the coming of Jesus, there's been a landing of the leader of the kingdom of God, and he's taking over ground. And so wherever he goes, one of the marks of that is exorcisms, not a sidebar, a major part of the story. And so this was so big that his uh, opponents, his religious opponents, religious leaders, they had to come up with an account for this. How does he have this incredible power? It's so obvious so they come up with a theory, and this is their attack, that the reason you have so much spiritual power is because you're being empowered by the dark side. And Jesus says, what is wrong with you? Did you skip logic 101? It's like if an army is fighting itself, it's going to lose. And if the kingdom is fighting itself, it's going, and the kingdom of darkness is casting out the kingdom of darkness, it's going to lose. He said, that's not what's happening. He says, what's happening? And he uses this analogy. He says, it's like, it's like if there's a strong man and he's got his armor and he's got his, his guys and, and he's got this estate and he's got all this valuable stuff on it, it's safe until a stronger man comes and defeats him and strips off his armor and then rips off his stuff. He says, that's what's happening. I am the stronger man. I'm breaking into the kingdom and I'm ripping off his stuff. And then he goes on, and if that's true, it is proof that what I'm claiming about the coming of the kingdom of God is actually accurate. And so there in your note sheet, for example, in Luke 11, this is volume one of Luke's story, he says, Jesus says, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He said, that's what's going on. The stronger man has come. He's breaking into the kingdom and ripping off his stuff. And then he goes on, the next verse, if I drive out demons by the finger of God or by the hand of God, the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
And so this is a story that Luke wants us to understand, that when someone comes to Jesus, what happens in that person's life is the kingdom of light invades the kingdom of darkness. The stronger man breaks in and takes over our life as his territory. And when that happens, we transfer kingdoms. We move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so Paul will go on to describe this. In fact, he'll write later a letter we call Colossians. He's writing to the church of Colossae. It's part of Asia, probably evangelized while Paul was there. And there in your note sheet, Colossians 1, Paul says, he says that he, talking about God, God rescued us from the domain of darkness. Let's say it again, the domain of darkness, okay? And he transferred us to the kingdom of his son. So when you come to Jesus, here's what happens. Jesus opens our eyes to the truth. It's like we've been under a spell of the dark Lord. We see reality for the first time. We see our rebellion against our true king. So we bow the knee. We bow the knee to our true king, right? And he pronounces amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom. And we switch sides in this spiritual war, and we move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. And when that happens, there is a new target painted on your back. It always makes me think of the Far Side cartoon. It's my favorite Far Side cartoon. It's like these two deer talking to one another. And the one has this, like, bullseye on his side. And the one says to the other, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> so when you come to Jesus, it's like you get a new birthmark, right? You have switched sides in this war. Paul, ta- we'll talk about it later in, in Acts 26. Look at Acts 26. This is later on in Acts. We'll get there in a few weeks. Uh, Paul is, be, is giving his, sharing his story with a man named King Agrippa about how he used to hate Christians and now he is a leader of Christians. And he's telling about his encounter with Jesus. It's the third time in Luke, by the way, in, in Acts that Luke is telling this story every time he adds a few more details. So Jesus says to Paul, who's just been knocked to the ground because of the light outside Damascus, he says, get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me, the resurrected Jesus, and of what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending them to you. Now catch this. To open their what? Eyes. So he says, before you come to Jesus, you're blind to reality. He says, Paul, I'm sending you to open their eyes. And he says, secondly, to turn them from darkness to light. We've seen those two kingdoms. And he said, and from the power of Satan to God. Okay? And so what Luke wants us to understand is that when someone comes to Jesus, there is a transfer of kingdoms that happens. And if you were to read volume one of Luke, this whole clash of kingdoms is on the front burner. As we've read through Acts, it's more on the back burner. We don't see it as much. It's there, just not as much. But the reason he's bringing it up today is because in Ephesus, it's a key to the story. And what he wants us to understand through this account in Ephesus, 
He wants us to understand that as followers of Jesus, we now have authority and power because Jesus is stronger than the dark side. That's the point. There is a spiritual war. Yes, there's a new target, but he wants us to understand that in this confrontation between darkness and light in Ephesus, Jesus wins an unmitigated victory because the name of Jesus is more powerful than any other name. So that's number one. We're going to start there. We're going to lay a foundation. Now, number two, the second principle goes like this, is that spiritual relationship leads to spiritual authority. Now, this is critical. What I find is that many times as followers of Jesus, we are afraid of the dark side. We've come to Jesus, but many of us kind of live in fear of the dark side, and that's because we don't really understand who we are or the authority that we now have as followers of Jesus. So this is something Paul wants us to understand, that when we come to Jesus, we not only switch kingdoms, but we move into a new relationship. Before we came to Jesus, we were enemies of God, as as Paul says in Ephesians 2, we're enemies of God. We are now friends, but more than that, we are once enemies, and we're now sons and daughters of the king. And as sons and daughters of the king, we have access to all the spiritual power of our big brother, Jesus, that we are part of the family, we are given the keys to the car, that we have the the authority now. Now, this is very important. We understand this. So, for, for example, years later, the Apostle Paul would write a letter back to the churches in the area of Ephesus. We call it Ephesians. A couple of you, or some of you, were here a couple years ago when we were doing this study of Ephesians called Epic. And you remember, if you were here, you remember that the way that study starts off in chapter one is Paul says, you need to understand who you are as a follower of Jesus. Once you were lost, once you were enemies, once you were part of the kingdom of darkness, you're under the power of the principalities of darkness. And you were like everyone else. He says, but what happened is that God chose you before time to come to Christ. And he opened your eyes to who he was and that he not only forgave you for all crimes against the kingdom, but he adopted you into his family. And so you're now sons and daughters of the king. And as sons and daughters, he has sent the spirit of his son into your life by which you cry, Abba, Father. And so you are now organically linked with Jesus through his spirit. So we've often talked about here, so Rocky Peak, that, that, uh, that kind of a modern analogy is that when you come to Jesus, you're not just forgiven, you go online with Jesus. You're networked with him. So uh, this is why Paul will say things like uh, that when you are baptized, you're baptized into Christ Jesus. You died with Christ. You raised with Christ. You're organically linked right? so that Christ lives in you. You live with him. And so Paul's shorthand for describing this organic link between believers and Jesus is his two little words, in Christ. They are two of the most important words in our Bible. That before we came to Christ, we were his enemies, but now we are in Christ. And so he'll say, in the Lord Jesus, or in Jesus Christ, or in the Lord. And it's his shorthand way of describing this big picture reality. When you came to Jesus, he comes with you. There is an organic link so that you are in him, he is in you, and therefore, because of this relationship, 
you have access to his power. And so, for example, there on your note sheet, at the end of Ephesians, he'll talk about this whole issue of spiritual warfare. And I want you to notice his language. He says, I want you to be strong. And then what are the next three words? Okay, in the Lord. These are not just uh, throwaway words. This is Paul's shorthand. He's saying, be strong in Christ. You are in Christ. You have access to Christ. You have access to his mighty power. Now, be sure that you use it. So what he says is, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But catch that, there's a choice, isn't there? You can either be strong in the Lord or you can choose not to be strong in the Lord. So it's not automatic that since you're in Christ, you have access. Now let me give you an analogy like this. If my wife today, while I'm here teaching and can't get away, if my wife were to go to Bank of America, right, and she were to walk in and present her ATM card and show her ID, she could drain our account of everything. And the reason is we're in relationship and she's on our account. So she has access. She can use the ATM card anytime she wants because her name is on the account. Now, the seven sons of Sceva, their names are not on the account. So they can take the same ATM card and they can go plop it down and say, I'd like to drain this account. And the teller is going to say, ID, please. And they're not going to be able to present ID. And they're going to have no rights or authority over that account. They don't have right for the name of Jesus because they have no relationship with Jesus. Let me catch this. The authority that you have over the dark side has nothing to do with the way you say the words. It has nothing to do with the way you plop down the ATM card of Jesus. It has nothing to do with holy water or holy oil or holy anything else. The reason you can plop down the ATM card is that you are part of the king's family. And as part of his family, you have the rights and authority of King Jesus himself to do what Jesus would do if he were in the situation. So are you clear on this? Because some of us are afraid of this. Some of us, you see, this happens. You will see, and you'll go into your baby's room, and there's a being over the room. And you freak out. You don't need to freak out. That demon is more afraid of you than you are afraid of the demon. Now, let me get a little bit more accurate. The demon is more afraid of who stands behind you. So if you are in Christ, you have authority because of relationship. The seven sons of Sceva didn't have relationship That's why the demon said, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? you Your name's not on that account. (laughs) You don't have the right ID. Who do 
you, what do you think you're doing? It's ridiculous. Ah, I'm just having some fun with you. <laughs> and so Paul goes on. He says to be strong in the Lord, his mighty power. And he says, put on the full armor of God. So notice there's a choice. You can put it on or you can't. Put it on, put it on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes. So what's Paul saying? He's saying there's a really bright guy. He's really smart, really powerful, way smarter than you. And he is scheming against you. He wants to take you out, destroy your life, steal, kill, and destroy. He says, but you're okay as long as you remember who you are and you stand in his power. He says, but just to be clear on this, who you're up against, let me spell it out. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Just a quick sidebar here as we go in this election time. Can I say this, that many times we look at our nation today and we despair, and we make the mistake of thinking our enemy is flesh and blood. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, it's the spiritual powers behind the schemes against our nation. And when we fall into the enemy's tactics, we use mocking, we use bitterness, we use hatred, all we are doing is taking up the enemy's weapons and becoming part of the problem, not the solution. And so he says, put a, uh, he says our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, it's against, and, and catch this, it's like a big, big picture description, against rulers, against the authorities, against the evil powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. So you're up against something big here, but, he says, you have been equipped to take your stand. Uh, but there's a choice involved. You, you, have to, uh, you have to make the right choices, all right? Now, uh, let's go to number three. So number three is that spiritual repentance leads to spiritual freedom. And this is critical. We've seen that we transfer kingdoms. We're in this new relationship. We've also seen, though, that this power that we have is not automatic, it's something that we have to act on. We have to activate. And here's what I want to suggest is that in your life and my life, when we come to Jesus, there is a lot of ground that we need to take back from the enemy. There are ways that we think. There are habits of our life, ways that we've programmed ourselves that the enemy has programmed. And we've got to take those things back. Like when we come to Jesus, it's not like everything gets healed at once, right? Like if you've been in a horrible marriage, before you come to Jesus, coming to Jesus doesn't suddenly make that perfect. There are all these ways of relating that are highly dysfunctional. They're going to have to be healed and taken back one by one. You know, if you came to Jesus and you're, when you came, you're addicted to pornography, then sometimes Jesus would take away like that, but most times not. It's like you're going to have to take that back with the power of his spirit, battle by battle. You come, you're addicted to alcohol. You've got a habit of, of revenge or bitterness, a short fuse. He's had you under his spell for a long time. You're going to have to take that back, step by step. So how do we do that? Well, the key is what I'm calling today spiritual repentance. leads to spiritual uh, freedom. And there's a great example of that here in, in uh, Ephesus. Uh, here are these believers, they've come to Jesus, they've been baptized, right? They've passed through the waters. Uh, 
they have transferred kingdoms, they've entered into a new relationship, they receive God's spirit, and yet they are holding out. There are some closets in their life that they have not cleaned out. In their case, it involved the occult. And by the way, just quick sidebar here, is followers of Jesus, I hope you understand that one of the first things we need to clean out of our life when we come to Jesus is anything association from our past with occultic activities. And it's really surprising to me how many times I'll talk to believers and they'll, they'll ask things like, well, what's your sign? Mm. Uh, now, here's the thing. Often, I think this is out of ignorance, that we, we don't really know, we don't really understand that when we participate in seances, palm readings, uh, magic, uh, these kinds of things, uh, astrology, that these are direct tools of the enemy, and we're opening ourselves up for attack. And so if we want to close out the enemy, I mean, like, first thing, like, no, we don't mess with that, right, right? And, and that's why these believers, once they, this thing with the seven sons of Sceva, they're like, it freaked them out. It's like, oh my gosh, the power of the dark side. I need to align myself with the winning team here, and I need to do it now. So let's just say that, that, that just quick sidebar, if that happens to be your thing, um, that, that I would hope that you would just renounce that. But, but once they realize, so you have to say, well, why were they holding on to these old ways? Why would they come to Jesus, be baptized, transferred kingdoms, going to the school of Tyrannus every afternoon. They're learning, they're growing. But why would they keep their past involvement in magic uh, secret? Why would they hold on to these old scrolls? And my hunch is, you know, there could be several reasons. Sometimes it's, it really is out of ignorance. We just don't understand the danger. I think um, sometimes it's out of fear. I think that chances are they were very afraid of the spirit realm and they had bought into Jesus, but what if he doesn't work? And let's, uh, let's just hold on to this for a rainy day. You know, maybe there's a time when I will need this power. I'll need this spell. And so I'm going to hold on to it. I'm not sure Jesus is powerful enough. And once the event happens, they're like, oh, he is powerful enough. I want to be on his team. But, but it's out of fear. I think sometimes we hold on to things out of fear. You know, I, I think of the young woman or the young man. You're, 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 you're dating someone that you know they're, they're not right for you. you they they're not walking with the Lord, um, you know that, and yet you're afraid to let go of them because you're afraid that Jesus may not provide for you the right person, and so having somebody is better than nobody, and so we hold on out of fear. Uh, sometimes it comes to our finances, how we make them, how we spend it, how we give it. It's like, well, I know what Jesus is saying, but I'm not sure it will work, so out of fear, I'm going to hang on to my old ways. Um, that uh, we come to Jesus and, and we've been sexually active and promiscuous and it's like, well, I don't know if I'll ever get a date if I don't, I'm not sure that I'll ever, like who could, who could marry you know, if, they, if I'm not willing to give in in this area. And so out of fear. So sometimes out of fear we'll hold on to dark side. Sometimes that's out of ignorance. Sometimes I think it's out of just a cost. Like for them, it was a financial cost. I mean, they could have put these scrolls on Craigslist and made a lot of money. And so, you know, it's like maybe there's a cost in your life uh, involved. 
Uh, sometimes it's out of disobedience. I think that you, we know these things are wrong, and yet we still hold on. But what I want you to catch is when we hold on to the darkness, after the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us, this dimmer switch principle starts kicking in. And the moment you know something's wrong, and the moment you know it's dark, and you choose to embrace it, to hide it, to pretend, to defend, the moment you do that, the light starts diminishing, and its power over you increases. I often think of the movie Lord of the Rings and the, and the, call, the, uh, the character Gollum, and with the ring of power, my precious the longer you hold on to something that's evil, the more it becomes your precious. The harder it is to give up and the more power it has over you. And so you'd see this like when Frodo was trying to take it to destroy it, and yet from time to time he would just have this lure to take it out. But every time he took it out and put it on, he fell more under his power. And so what did they need to do? They needed to confess and renounce and this is what I want, I want to talk about these two words, because I think in modern Christian circles, we talk about confessing sin. What we often mean by that is telling God, I'm sorry for doing it. And so what happens is that there's a sin in our life or an area of sin. We know we shouldn't be doing it. The Holy Spirit showed it, and we've done it again. Um, and so we feel bad about it. We feel guilty, and we're, our spirit's at unrest, and we hate that, that feeling, Right? So we're going to go and ask God to forgive us, tell more sorry, so we can be back at peace. But catch this. Often, when we think of confession, we have no intention of giving that sin up. What we are doing is we're putting that ring in our pocket for a rainy day. We know that sooner or later we will come back. I can remember this in my own life. I can remember a period of my life where I was struggling with sexual sin. And there's certain vows or commitments I would make to the Lord. I'd ask him to forgive me. And I'd make certain vows of commitment. I will not do this again. You know, but I knew in my heart I would. I was confessing. I was not renouncing. There's a difference between, in our language, I'm not talking about scripturally, I think scripturally to confess and renounce are the same, but the way we use the language, there's a difference between confessing and renouncing. Renouncing happens when you burn your ships. Renouncing happens when you burn your scrolls. Renouncing happens when a young man says, God, I not only ask you to forgive me for looking at pornography again, but I am going to get an accountability partner and I'm putting software on my computer to hold me accountable to this relationship. A, 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 a renouncing happens when you say, I'm just getting rid of cable. A renouncing happens when Someone says, I'm just not getting a subscription to that anymore. A renouncing happens when a husband says, I'm putting my computer in the family room so that there's built-in accountability. Do you see the difference? One is saying, God, I'm sorry for this. The other is saying, I am sick of this, and I want to put distance between myself, and I will cut off whatever is required 
because I am not just confessing, I am renouncing. And so for the wife who has a problem with spending, God, I'm so sorry I overspent our budget again. Confessing. A wife who cuts up the credit cards, renouncing. The person who says, I, God, I'm so sorry for getting drunk again or for using again or if we're going to party again. That's confessing. The person says, I'm going to go to celebrate recovery. I'm going to bring this, this addiction out into the light. I'm going to confess it publicly and I'm going to build accountability into my life. I'm going to seek healing. That is renouncing. Do you see the difference? And many times we wonder, why is there not spiritual power in my life? And the reason is, is because we're confessing, but we're not renouncing. We are saying, God, I'm sorry for trusting the evil spirits, but I'm holding on to my scrolls just in case. And we come to a point in our life, we renounce and we cut ties. We cut off that relationship. We stop going to that place. We set ourselves a curfew in our dating relationship. We go back to our boss and we say, you know what? I've lied to you. And I've done that for a long time. But I just want to tell you that I'm sorry. I've, I'm, I want to change my life. I've, I've become a Christian. This is wrong. And I, I want to ask you to forgive me. And I want to come clean. That's renouncing. That man or woman who's married who throws away the card from the old boyfriend or girlfriend with the, the telephone number. Now they're renouncing. You see, you see the difference? In confessing and renouncing. And men and women, this leads to spiritual power. When we confess without renouncing, we are not being strong in the Lord. We are leaving ourselves open for spiritual attack. And so this leads to one question then. And it's a powerful question, simple but powerful. It's there on your note sheet, one simple question. The question I have for you today is, is there any rebellion you need to renounce? And just to be clear here, I'm not asking you to become like morbidly introverted. Um, I always fear a little bit because I know in a, in a crowd like this, in a church like this, a congregation like this, that there's some of you have a very sensitive conscience. You're going to go home and you're going to scour yourself for a week looking, is there anything? You want to make sure there's no loopholes for the enemy. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, will you just go before the Lord honestly and say, Lord, I, I want all the freedom that you have. I don't want any pockets of darkness that would hold me back, that would enslave me, keep me from living the life you've called me to live. And so if there's anything in my life, is there any rebellion that I've been resisting you, holding on to, I've been ignorant of, would you show it to me? And I'm saying is that if he does, will you renounce it? Recognizing if you don't, you will go further into the darkness and even lose the level of understanding and insight and freedom you now have. Because truth rejected always leads to further enslavement. Remember what Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. When you reject the truth, it always leads to deeper enslavement. 
And so what I'm asking you today is we, is we bring this service to, and we're going to go into this time of worship. We're going to have a couple songs here, a right, couple times, because I want you to have some time to think about this. Just be with the Lord. We're going to start with the song, No Longer Slaves, which celebrates our freedom in Christ. We have passed through the waters of baptism. He has made a way. We are sons and daughters. There's freedom there. And then we're going to move into the song, Lion and the Lamb. And I want you to remember in the book of Revelation, what John writes when he talks about our, our accuser of the brother and how we win. He says we overcome him by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the lamb. And because we do not love our lives even to death, we renounce the dark side. And so I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray us in. We'll be taking the offering during this first song. But I just want to give some time to reflect, to listen, to renounce. I want to encourage you, if there's something in your life you need to renounce, I want to really encourage you, maybe this week, you get together with maybe a close friend or two, maybe it's a life group, some people in your life that you can trust. James says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for one to be healed. It's an awesome step of renouncing. All right, let's pray. God, we just come before you as your church. And today, Lord, we want to stand with you in the kingdom of light. We want to renounce the kingdom of darkness. We want to renounce those rooms in our life that we have kept hidden. And God, we want to come before you today and say that we know that you are more powerful, that you love us, that you lead to life, that the enemy wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So we want to stand with you because we want all the freedom that you have coming. And so, God, we pray you teach us how to be strong in you and the power of your might. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know whose you are? (laughs) You stand in him. You're in Christ. You've been baptized with him into his death. You've been raised with him through the power of God to a new life through the work of his spirit. You've been raised up with him seated in the heavenlies where he is ruling over all power and authority. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Mm. You know, as he wraps up his little letter of 1 John, the Apostle John says, the one who is born of God does not continue to sin because the one who has been born of God protects him and the evil one cannot touch him. Powerful. Mm-hmm. Amen. And so, men and women, brothers and sisters, my challenge to you is straight out of the Word of God. Be who you are. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. There is an enemy who hates you, scheming, powerful, bright, brilliant, long-lasting, been studying us forever. He's out to destroy you, destroy your marriage, your career, your life with Jesus, your parenting, your dating, to do damage in every area of your life. The battle is very real. But the lion, the tribe of Judah, lives in you. And he has power. And he has given you his ATM card. (laughs) And you have access to all his mighty power. And that is why Paul says, so use it. Be strong in the Lord, his mighty power.
May this be a week where you come out of darkness in any area where you've been deceived or held back or enslaved. You come out into the light. You publicly, you confess. And then you renounce. You burn your ships. You burn your scrolls. You cut your ties. You cut off retreat. And you say, I'm in 100%. I go where the king goes. I bow the knee. I refuse to be a hypocrite. I follow my king, and he speaks in my life, and where he leads, I'll follow. And as you do that, with every step of new obedience, it will move to new freedom, a new power, a new impact, and it will change not only your life, but the lives around you that he's chosen you to change. So may this week you be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And I'll see you next week. God bless you. Mm.